Hi there, Kindred Spirits. Thank you for joining us today on Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, joined by my amazing co-host, Reagan Duffy. Today, I am delighted to tell you that we are going to discuss all things romance in Anne of the Island. This is an episode we've been excited to record for ages. And now that we're here, I am absolutely beyond thrilled to be able to get into all the details about our favorite enemies to friends to lovers story. But before we do, hey, Reagan, you just had a great visit with your sister, nephew and niece. How was it? Oh my gosh, we had such a good time. My nephew stayed for a week and then my sister came back for a long weekend and brought my niece along as well. So we had a nice long weekend together. The kids had such a blast together. I love seeing the friendship that my daughter has with both of them. And it just makes doing fun things around in LA even more fun. So you'll ask them what their favorite things were. And it's going to be playing video games together. And I was like, guys, guys, I took you to Into the Woods. I took (laughs) you to the beach for boogie boarding. You really rolled out the red carpet for them. And then when I asked your daughter tonight, hey, what was your favorite part of visiting with your cousin? She said, I won all the video games. Come on now. Core <laughs> memories here. But you know what? Those are the core memories, right? Core memories. <laughs> oh, it was really funny. My sister and I got some great one-on-one time together. We went out to dinner on Saturday. We left, the, left the kids with my husband. Bye. Um, <laughs> and we had a really just lovely dinner and spent far too long talking over ice cream afterwards. It was just a really great family connection time. So I'm, I'm glad you had that time with her. Thank you. And how about you? You got sick after your last vacation. Okay, so everybody, mask up. COVID is still... I've had COVID for like the last week. I haven't tested negative yet, but fingers crossed that I do soon. Um, I'm definitely on the mend. And I'll tell you, Regan, I think I finally figured out where I got it from. My husband and I decided that we wanted to like be a little bit more purposeful about doing some date nights and really spending some like quality time together instead of just sort of retreating to our separate sides of the couch, mm-hmm. you know, in the evenings. We signed up for a pottery class near us, which we went to a weekend five days ago. Oh, no. <laughs> oh wonderful time but we were in this very small pottery studio with lots of other people and five days later I got COVID so I don't know do the math my friend <laughs> oh is that the is that the universe telling you no date nights just stay on the couch I just think it's the universe saying you know what mask up when you're in public spaces COVID's not over <laughs> anyway well I'm glad you are on the mend and feeling well enough to record today thank you so let's get right into our episode I'm going to introduce our kindred spirit of the episode, and you all may be surprised that it's not Gilbert, despite the fact that this is the romance episode, but rather it's the irrepressible Philippa Gordon, Anne's dear friend from Redmond College. We're going to go further into why Phil is so vital to Anne's romantic life through this episode, but suffice it to say, she ends up being an unlikely voice of reason. Phil is just a delight throughout the book. She's beautiful and rich, kind and loving, warm and funny. She's both the comic relief and the emotional heart of Anne of the Island. And we'll see how she both pushes Anne and models for Anne a journey to romantic fulfillment. I love Phil and I'm so glad we're going to spend a ton of time with her today. So our quote of the episode is actually going to be Anne of the Island's gorgeous epigraph. And an epigraph, for those of you who are not English majors, is the little quote that precedes the beginning of the book. So here, Ella Montgomery is quoting Tennyson. All precious things discovered late to those that seek them issue forth. For love in sequel works with fate. 
and draws the veil from hidden worth. That idea of seeking out precious things discovered late, like a faded love, maybe, <laughs> is one of the three wink. lines. <laughs> wink, wink. <laughs> is one of the three lines of Anne of the Island. We are going to chat all about how Anne wrestles with the idea of love working together with fate, pushing back up against it right until the moment where she can't deny it anymore. So in today's story club, we're going to finish our discussion of Anne of the Island with the third prong of Anne's value statement, divine beauty. In previous episodes, we discussed how young Anne was fixated on her appearance, sure that her perceived homeliness was the reason that she had not been adopted into a loving family. And even as she grew up and grew into her looks and became more comfortable with the idea that she actually was a lovely young woman, she does still retain this underlying sense that her worth is directly related to her appearance. So in terms of romance, Anne had long suspected that she was too plain to ever marry for love. And as a kid, she assumed that she would have to marry a foreign missionary who she thought would not be too picky for some reason. <laughs> and so with that background, we can see how Anne is still a little mistrustful of real romance in her own life. It's something she dreams of, but is not sure is for her. So let's jump into Anne's continuing evolution regarding romance. And this is a painful journey for both Anne and the readers. Oh my gosh, so painful. So, so painful. You know, Kelly, my husband has never read Anne of the Island, but he listened to our recap episode of, of it when it came out a few weeks ago. Oh, and he came you, home. Yeah, no, good job. Yay, Steve. He came home and he says, I am so mad at Anne. And I was like, oh, welcome to the club. Correct. Correct. That's the correct response. <laughs> Steve, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the agony that is this book. Join us over here. This is exactly what we all go through. Mm-hmm. One of Anne's ongoing overarching themes, particularly in Anne of Avonlea and Anne of the Island, is finding ways to stay true to her idealistic heart while also living in and rejoicing in the real world. We saw her struggle with this in regards to teaching and in regards to writing, but the place we see it most is in her romantic life. Anne wants life to be capital R romantic, and we've seen her struggle when romance is not the picture she's imagined in her head. Way, way back in Anne of Green Gables, after being stranded in the pond while playing the Lady of Shalott, Anne tells Matthew and Marilla that she's swearing off romance for good. She says, today's mistake is going to cure me of being too romantic. I've come to the conclusion that it is no use trying to be romantic in Avonlea. It was probably easy enough in Towered Camelot hundreds of years ago, but romance is not appreciated now. Marilla says she hopes so, but Matthew, so wise in his own quiet way, puts his hand on Anne's shoulder and says, don't give up all your romance, Anne. A little of it is a good thing. Not too much, of course, but keep a little of it, Anne. Keep a little of it. Of course, Anne meant there that she was swearing off trying to live a poetic life here in Avonlea, not necessarily romance as it pertained to relationships. But we can see that overall, this is one of Anne's central growth arcs. And wise Matthew hit the nail right on the head. Anne has to learn how to keep a little bit of her romance intact a little bit of her idealism. She has to learn how to let her ideals grow and mature, become flexible. She has to see that romance and ideals don't have to be perfect to be inspiring and to be right for her. And starts the journey being stranded in Barry's pond and being rescued by Gilbert. And this book marks the culmination of this very slow arc. Okay. But can we also just point out that for all of Anne's protestations, Gilbert saving her in Barry's Pond actually was incredibly romantic. I mean, here she is coming back to Matthew and Marilla like, oh, romantic things just don't happen in Avonlea. Ma'am, the most romantic thing ever just happened to you in Avonlea. 
But I mean, I know that especially at that time, Anne wasn't ready to see it, but my childhood self still kind of thrills when I think about that dramatic rescue. So when last we left Anne's romantic life in Anne of Avonlea, she was wrapped up in a whirlwind of emotions related to romance. She was deeply invested in the story of Miss Lavender's second chance romance with John Irving, and the wedding was absolute catnip to Anne's poetic soul. She viewed this experience as if she were living in a romance novel, just like the story of poor Hester Gray, who died so young. And this was all really clear in the text because the language that Anne used to describe these events was like something from a fable. Mr. Irving was Prince Charming and Hester Gray is described as little Hester Gray with her soft eyes and the wind ruffling her dark hair, wandering about, putting her fingertips under the chins of the lilies and whispering secrets with the roses. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is beautiful, but these are not real people she's talking about. These are the heroes and heroines of high romance. Right. They're clearly characters to Anne in a grand and beautiful story. On the flip side and closer to home, Anne is disappointed and a tiny bit betrayed and judgmental about Diana's engagement to Fred Wright. Romance is all well and good for people in the past or an older generation, but not for her best friend. Anne holds Diana to the daydreams of their youth when romance was about being swept off your feet by dashing melancholy heroes who gave poetic speeches and proved their love with daring deeds. Anne thinks marrying an ordinary man who lives in an ordinary town such as Avonlea is giving up on those ideals. She's unsettled by the idea that someone her age is experiencing love and maybe even a little wary of it, like it can't be real if it is this ordinary. We also saw that on the way home from Miss Lavender's wedding while walking with Gilbert, Anne had a tiny moment of realization that maybe, just maybe, love didn't have to be grand and overwhelming. That love could be found in quiet moments and with the closeness of a good friend. But she quickly shuts that thought down before it can become more specific to Gilbert. We love that the thought crept in though, right? She is growing. We see these little tendrils of growth. I think that's always what's so frustrating throughout this book is she'll have a moment like that and then she'll immediately discount it and shut it down. Totally. It's like one step forward, two steps back with her. It is. It's a frustrating journey for all of us. (laughs) So Anne's ideals around romance are very, very clear to her, right? These are these ideals that have been shaped by romantic poetry and novels and honed in hours of daydreaming that were a necessary escape for much of Anne's childhood. Retreating to a fantasy world was quite literally how Anne survived the drudgery, neglect, and trauma of her young childhood. So we have to understand as readers that the hold on her that this fantasy realm has is really strong. And here's the kicker. Anne has been lucky enough that some of those wildest dreams have actually come true. She was adopted by wonderful people who love her. She has the friendship and adoration of a beautiful girl like Diana. She has excelled in school, and she's now headed off to college, a rare achievement for any young woman in that time, much less an orphan of modest means. So... Anne's fantasies have become realities before, and I think she persists in some of this magical thinking because not only has her fantasy life protected her, but it's also fueled her ambitions, it's given her things to strive for, and it's brought her moments of deep gratitude and appreciation when her dreams do come true. So for all that we're going to talk about how Anne's idealism is holding her back in her romantic life, let's not forget how well it has actually served her in other areas of her life. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense as I hear you say that because all of Anne's daydreams and idealism let her stay open to love that another child who may have gotten hard and closed themselves off Mm -hmm. from their experiences that might have been similar to Anne's would not have been able to accept kind of the rough 
halting love that Marilla and Matthew were able to offer her. Right. She needed those. And that's what let her stay so open and have opportunities for connection. These ideals have really helped her along the way in so many ways. I mean, not only was it very literally a mental escape from her in during tough times, but as she moved out of survival mode and into the rest of her life where she had an opportunity to thrive and be taken care of, having these high ideals gave her something to work for and to yearn for and to hold out for, right? Whether it is the sort of prickly love that Matthew and Marilla could offer her or whether it was a scholarship to college. Those are not the kinds of things that people from Anne's background would typically have achieved. And let's also not forget that Anne has already grown tremendously in becoming more flexible in her idealistic visions and other areas of her life, especially around education and career, as we've discussed in previous episodes. So we know that she's capable of blending her fantasy life with her real life. But at this point, as far as romance specifically is concerned, it's all castles in Spain, satin gowns, and brooding suitors confessing undying love. Anne has no idea what love actually looks like in the real world or what happens after a proposal. We start Anne of the Island immediately after Anne of Avonlea ends. Anne is full of conflicting feelings and Gilbert attempts to test the waters a little with Anne. He's not wrong to try. A moment definitely passed between them when they walked home from Miss Lavender's wedding. There was a spark. So as he and Anne are chatting on the bridge about their upcoming departure from Avonlea, he gently puts his hand on hers. Before he can even say anything, Anne snatches her hand away and shatters away for the rest of the walk to Green Gables. She doesn't even pause for a breath. (laughs) (laughs) The text says, Anne felt rather relieved when they parted. There had been a new secret self-consciousness in her heart with regard to Gilbert ever since that fleeting moment of revelation in the garden of Echo Lodge. Something alien had intruded into the old, perfect school day comradeship. Something that threatened to mar it. I never felt glad to see Gilbert go before, she thought, half resentfully, half sorrowfully, as she walked alone up the lane. Our friendship will be spoiled if he goes on with this nonsense. It mustn't be spoiled. I won't let it. Oh, why can't boys be just sensible? Anne had an uneasy doubt that it was not strictly sensible that she should still feel on her hand the warm pressure of Gilbert's as distinctly as she had felt it there for the swift second his head rested there, and still less sensible that the sensation was far from being an unpleasant one. And then Anne goes on to compare it to the experience of Charlie Sloan, also trying to hold her hand a few days ago, which was altogether disagreeable. Anne. I know. She's so clearly conflicted here. And some of that we can chalk up to her age and inexperience. I mean, the first time someone you like indicates that they might like you back, you might freak out a little and pull away, not knowing what the next step is or not feeling ready for the next step. Some of it is the way she's consistently been framing Gilbert as a friend. Right. She's really afraid of changing her friendship with Gilbert. And remember that Anne is someone who, until she came to Green Gables at 11, had never had a real friend, had never been loved or cared for or felt important to anyone before. Her time at Green Gables gave her all those things, and she cherishes those experiences and relationships deeply and fears losing them. That's part of her worries about Diana getting married. Exchanging an important friendship for romance is... Too risky, especially when she's never seen that kind of love up close to even have it to aspire to in the first place. 
Oh, you are making so many interesting points here, Reagan. I mean, first, that Anne still feels a little insecure about her friendships. I mean, sure, we know that she's 18 and pretty and bright and well-liked and popular now, but up until only a few years ago, she never had a friend at all. And all of a sudden, in one summer, she feels like she might lose her two dearest friends, Diana by marriage to Fred, and Gilbert if he wants a closer relationship than Anne is ready for. So that's really showing me that the stakes are feeling really high for Anne. And I think we might also want to recognize that Gilbert isn't just a good friend. He's probably Anne's only intellectual equal in her life at this point. He's the only one she can spar and banter with. He's the only one who can keep up with her reading and quotations. While Anne loves Diana and Mrs. Allen, Miss Lavender and Jane and Ruby and all her other friends, Gilbert is probably the only person she can really talk to about ambition and purpose. So she really will do anything to not jeopardize that. And then Reagan, I feel like the other really good point you made is that Anne hasn't ever had a normal, everyday kind of romance modeled for her. When she was a child, she she only ever saw these unhappy, abusive marriages. And then when the Cuthbert siblings adopted her, she saw their partnership. But of course, it wasn't a partnership grounded in romantic love. When I think about this, I really relate to Anne in that. My parents also separated when I was really young. They were both single my whole childhood. So I didn't see on a daily basis what it's like to make a life with someone you love, with everything that entails from daily household activities to long-term planning or co-parenting, other big projects like that, and then still making time to love each other. And when my husband and I first moved in together, I could never have imagined the life we've made together now, you know, almost 20 years later. I mean, I truly didn't know what to expect. And it was scary at first. Absolutely. Gilbert has an uphill battle here on several fronts Mm -hmm. and doesn't like change particularly in close relationships, and hasn't seen a happy romantic relationship modeled in real life, and thinks of romance in a deeply idealistic way that has nothing to do with real life, and Anne has never thought of herself as beautiful enough to be loved. Although her time at Green Gables has let her feel worthy enough, beautiful enough to be loved as someone's child and to be loved as a friend, there's a part of her deep down that's afraid she's still not worthy enough to be loved romantically. Romance is safer in daydreams than with real people who know you, see you as you, people who could reject you even. Gilbert tries his luck one more time the evening of the AVIS farewell party and leans in to say, quote, something sentimental to Anne. What do you think he said? Good question. I don't think he got very far with it. I'm sure not. (laughs) Anne decides to punish him by allowing Charlie Sloan to walk her home instead. But, quote, she found, however, that revenge hurts nobody quite so much as the one who tries to inflict it. Yep, always the case. Gilbert heads off with Ruby Gillis instead, and Anne can hear them laughing together while she is bored silly by Charlie Sloan, who never, even by accident, said one thing that was worth listening to. (laughs) And then, of course, it's just this sort of thing that will later set up Charlie's disastrous proposal to Anne. But, you know, she can hardly predict that at this point. Anne sails off to Redmond, Charlie and Gilbert by her side. You know, I actually would be interested in a chapter from Charlie's perspective. <laughs> like, is his version of this story a love triangle between him, Gilbert, and Anne? <laughs> and off at Redmond, Anne meets Philippa Gordon, our kindred spirit. Now, in contrast to Anne's firm abstention from bows of any kind, Philippa has two suitors, alliteratively named Alec and Alonzo. And Phil treats them as thoroughly interchangeable and seems about as interested in a real romantic connection with either of them as Anne is with Gilbert or Charlie. But unlike Anne, who is very firm about making sure the men in her life know that they are only her friends, Philippa is perfectly happy to lead these two men along. 
It's interesting that Anne and Phil seem equally unready for real romance during this first year at Redmond, and yet here's Phil with dates galore and Anne working very hard to keep it all strictly platonic. Exactly. Right from the beginning, Anne and Phil have this interesting parallel journey. Yes, right? Parallel but opposite. Parallel but opposite. They're kind of coming at it from different directions, but they've got to get to similar places. Neither of them are ready for true love at this point, but the way Phil does it is by having all these bows and being so popular and so busy and gadding about town. And Anne is just sort of like friend zone only. I mean, I hate that expression, friend zone, but you know what I mean. <laughs> well, unfortunately for Anne, despite her best efforts, she receives two awkward and unwanted proposals during her first year at Redmond. One is from Jane Andrews' brother, Billy which is hilariously conveyed through Jane instead of Billy directly, and one from the oblivious Charlie Sloan, who thinks he is one point on the Avonlea love triangle. Anne turns them both down, and the sheer ludicrousness of these two proposals begins to crack the foundations of Anne's romantic idealism. There's nothing storybookish about rejecting your good friend's brother right to her face, or to have to reject someone like Charlie unkindly because he wouldn't accept no otherwise. Both of these encounters leave Anne feeling awkward and unworthy, and her ideal of romantic love feels farther than ever. Anne reflects on Billy's proposal like this. Quote, she had had her secret dreams of the first time someone should ask her the great question. And it had, in those dreams, always been very romantic and beautiful. The someone was to be very handsome and dark-eyed and distinguished-looking and eloquent, whether he were Prince Charming to be enraptured with yes, or one to whom a regretful, beautifully worded, but hopeless refusal must be given. If the latter, the refusal was to be expressed so delicately that it would be the next best thing to acceptance. And he would go away after kissing her hand, assuring her of his unalterable lifelong devotion. And it would always be a beautiful memory to be proud of and a little sad about also. And now this thrilling experience had turned out to be merely grotesque. There was romance for you with a vengeance. Anne laughed and sighed. The bloom had been brushed from one little maiden dream. Would the painful process go on until everything became prosaic and humdrum? Oh, maybe a little bit, right? (laughs) (laughs) And maybe that's a little bit of what Anne needs. Right. Well, you can see that Anne hasn't figured out that there are other options besides boring and prosy or high romance. Right. There's a middle ground, Anne. (laughs) There are lots of ways in which love shows up. Lots of different ways for lovely, beautiful romances to look. Anne just doesn't know what they are yet. Now, Gilbert, during all of this, is being smart in this first year of Redmond, and he doesn't make any other romantic moves. He's generally Anne's escort to all the various social activities, and he calls on Anne at the boarding house very often. He's being an excellent friend, and he is careful not to push Anne romantically. Anne knows their names are being linked in the college gossip pipeline, and she hates that, but admits to herself that she likes Gilbert's company better than anyone else's. There are quite a few other young men who are interested in Anne, and Gilbert is not going to throw away his advantage by putting Anne in the position to push him away. Anne can't admit it to herself that a tiny bit of her is now concerned that Gilbert isn't pursuing her and that she has little twinges of jealousy at any hint that Gilbert might talk to or write to any other young woman or even that another young woman might be interested in Gilbert. But she won't let herself sit with those feelings long enough to figure them out. Mm, Yeah, it would just be too uncomfortable. When they return to Avonlea for the summer, 
Anne's growth arc in regard to the way she idealizes romance gets an unexpected and tragic dose of cold, hard reality. Her childhood friend Ruby is dying from tuberculosis, which they called consumption. Anne had always had this romantic idea of death. Remember, she waxed rhapsodic about Hester Gray, who also died from consumption, saying that it was better to have a few years of perfect happiness, even if she did die young. Anne also was notorious for killing off her heroines and heroes in her story club stories, framing death as a romantic ending rather than tragedy. And, of course, it saved Anne the trouble of having to figure out what came next in the fictional relationship she created. And even though death has touched Anne's life plenty, her parents' death took place long before Anne had any memory of them. And there was a romance to a young couple dying so closely together as if they couldn't live without one another. Matthew's death was deeply sad, but of a man who had worked long and hard his whole life and who now was at peace and could rest content. But all of a sudden, Ruby's dying highlights for Anne the tragedy of death, brings it right up close to Anne. Diana tells Anne, it's so awful to hear Ruby rattling on as she does and pretending that there's nothing the matter with her, even when she can hardly speak for coughing. She's fighting so hard for her life, and yet she hasn't a chance at all, they say. Ruby is Anne's exact age, and they shared many childhood memories together. To contemplate Ruby dying just as her adult life is beginning is truly terrible. It's upsetting to hear Ruby talk about her dresses and her bows and silly gossip as if nothing at all is the matter. It's not romantic at all. And Anne notes, quote, what had once been silly or amusing was gruesome now. It was death peering through a willful mask of life. All the time I'm with her, I feel as if I were watching her struggle with an invisible foe, trying to push it back with such feeble resistance as she has. Later in the summer, Anne spends a last evening with Ruby. Ruby is quieter than usual, and suddenly Ruby brings up death for the first time. She says, how strange the graveyard looks by moonlight. How ghostly. Anne, it won't be long now before I'll be lying over there. You and Diana and all the rest will be going about full of life, and I'll be there in the old graveyard, dead. Ruby says plainly, I don't want to die. I'm afraid to die. Anne tries to comfort Ruby as they talk about heaven and what it might be like. Ruby says, I want to go on living here. I'm so young, Anne. I haven't had my life. I've fought so hard to live, and it isn't any use. I have to die and leave everything I care for. There's nothing for Anne to do but bear witness to Ruby's pain and grief. And Anne has a bit of a spiritual revelation while she's sitting with Ruby, realizing that, quote, the little things of life, sweet and excellent in their place, must not be the things lived for. The highest must be sought and followed. The life of heaven must begin here on earth. Anne is realizing death is not romantic. Inevitable, yes, and connected to spirituality and higher purpose, but it's not romantic. Death has come for one of Anne's peers, which makes it closer, more earthly, and more real than anything Anne had imagined about it before. Anne returns to Redmond, a little bit older, and plunges into life at Patty's place with her friends with a new joy. We hear little about Gilbert and romance in the first semester, except that he has been visiting Patty's place regularly. Over a snowy, cold winter break at Green Gables, Gilbert continues to visit Anne, wading through snowdrifts. But the visits are becoming awkward. Quote, Anne almost dreaded them. It was very disconcerting to look up in the midst of a sudden silence and find Gilbert's hazel eyes fixed upon her with a quite unmistakable expression in their grave depths. And it was still more disconcerting to find herself blushing hotly and uncomfortably under his gaze, just as if, just as if, well, it was very embarrassing. 
Anne wishes she was back at Patty's place, where there were always other folks about to buffer the intensity. Gilbert is having a harder time not expressing his feelings for Anne, and Anne is so confused about her response that she just wants to avoid it all. What's confusing for Anne is that she told herself over and over she likes Gilbert as a friend, but will never love him because that's not her romantic ideal. But clearly her subconscious has not gotten that message, and the blushing is proof of it. When they get back to Redmond for the spring semester, Anne ducks being alone with Gilbert as often as possible. She's avoiding having to figure out those confusing feelings. But in April, Gilbert catches her in the orchard alone and brings her wildflowers. At first, the conversation is easy as they talk about their upcoming summer plans. Gilbert will be staying in Kingsport to work over the summer. Anne's immediate reaction is to be dismayed, but she doesn't let herself dwell on what that might mean. As Gilbert takes her hand, Anne can sense where he's going and desperately tries to change the subject or go get Phil to join them. Gilbert won't be deterred, and he speaks plainly, though Anne begs him not to. He says, things can't go on like this any longer. Anne, I love you. You know I do. I I can't tell you how much. Will you promise me that someday you'll be my wife? Anne is distraught. She says that while she cares for Gilbert a great deal as a friend, she doesn't love him and will never love him. <laughs> oh, oh, this breaks your heart every time. This is, this is my skeleton leaving my body as I cringe so hard. <laughs> oh, quote, there was another pause so long and so dreadful that Anne was driven at last to look up. Gilbert's face was white to the lip and his eyes, but Anne shuddered and looked away. There was nothing romantic about this. Must proposals be either grotesque or horrible? Anne tells him there isn't anyone else she's in love with and she wants them to go on being friends. But for Gilbert, friendship is not enough. And Anne asks him to forgive her. Where, oh, where were all the gracious and graceful speeches wherewith, in imagination, she had been wont to dismiss rejected suitors? Uh, Yeah. Remember, she had her whole stable of perfect little speeches that would leave everybody feeling good at the other end of it. Right. The part where she says it would be almost as good as an acceptance. I'm like, no, this is a girl who has never been rejected. There's no way to reject someone in a way that makes them feel almost as good as if you had said yes. Still good. (laughs) Oh, baby. (laughs) Well, Gilbert says there's nothing to forgive. He thought there were moments between them when she must have felt the same way. But now he realized that there weren't. Weren't there? (laughs) Anne cries bitterly. She felt as if something incalculably precious had gone out of her life. It was Gilbert's friendship, of course. Now, we know, of course, it hurts so much because it's not just friendship. The signs have been there for ages, but Anne hasn't let herself look at her feelings truly. Bill finds Anne in a bit, and she earns her kindred spirit merit badge saying, I suppose you've gone and refused Gilbert Blythe. You are an idiot, Anne Shirley. Do you call it idiotic to refuse to marry a man I don't love? said Anne coldly, goaded to reply. You don't know love when you see it. You've tricked something out with your imagination that you think love, and you expect the real thing to look like that. There, that's the first sensible thing I've ever said in my life. I wonder how I managed it. Bill says quite plainly here what we've all known about Anne. It's been clear for years that Anne and Gilbert were on such their own wavelength that they've brought out the best in each other, that they understand each other deeply. But Anne has never let herself actually contemplate a romantic relationship with Gilbert. She's been convinced that love would look like the romance story she's read and written herself, and she won't let herself see love in their deep friendship. Phil can see it. Honestly, all of Avonlea sees it as well. But only Phil can say it this plainly to Anne. And maybe that's because Phil is 
Anne's intellectual equal, maybe because Phil is just naturally forthright and confident about her own feelings and motivations, but maybe especially because Phil is the friend of Anne's adulthood, so she's treating her here like an adult, not like a child. Anne distracts herself from this terrible moment with Gilbert with a trip to Phil's in Boilingbroke, Nova Scotia for a few weeks before she goes back to Green Gables for the summer. The highlight of the trip is a pilgrimage that Anne pays to the little house where she was born. The current tenant remembers Anne's parents and shares a few memories, including the detail that the two of them were buried together in one grave. She tells Anne, your eyes is like your ma's. She could just about talk with hers. Your father was sort of homely, but awfully nice. I mind hearing folks say when they were married that there were never two people more in love with each other. Poor creatures. They didn't live much longer, but they was awful happy while they were alive. And I suppose that counts for a good deal. So Anne's getting two messages here. One about romance between two ordinary people, even one who wasn't handsome, being beautiful and worthwhile. And the other echoes Anne's thoughts about Hester Gray, but it softens it. It's about being happy while they were alive, counting a good deal, regardless of how early they died. But the greatest gift she gives Anne is a handful of letters between her parents that were left in the closet. Anne finds her parents as real people in those letters, not just faceless characters in her imagination. And knowing her parents as real people lets her view their romance in a more well-rounded manner, one that lives here on earth, not just in an imagination. Anne feels Gilbert's absence in her life during the rest of her summer back at Green Gables. Paul Irving and Miss Lavender return to Echo Lodge for the summer, and Paul's experience with growing out of his rock people has symbolic resonance with Anne's journey through and away from her childish ideas of romance and love. Anne has told no one of the botched proposal from Gilbert, and everyone in Avonlea assumes closeness between Anne and Gilbert to be proceeding apace toward an engagement. But Miss Lavender senses something amiss and asks Anne directly, I see something's wrong, Anne. I'm going to be impertinent and ask what? Have you quarreled? No, it's only that Gilbert wants more than friendship, and I can't give him more. Are you sure of that, Anne? Perfectly sure. I'm very sorry. I wonder why everybody seems to think that I ought to marry Gilbert Blythe, said Anne petulantly. Because you were made and meant for each other, Anne. That is why. You needn't toss that young head of yours. It's a fact. And Miss Lavender has experience with losing love because she wouldn't be honest with herself about her feelings and be vulnerable. So she's speaking some hard-won wisdom here to Anne. But Anne still isn't ready for it. And you know the through line I'm noticing in some of these anecdotes, Reagan, between her conversation with Miss Lavender and having seen sort of the trajectory of Miss Lavender's romance, between Ruby dying so terribly young, between visiting the home she was born in in Nova Scotia and feeling more connected to her parents and their brief love story, is Anne is learning a lot about time. And she's learning about how much time we have to spend with the people we love. And she's learning these lessons, seeing this in all these different ways about if you do know that you have a connection with someone, if you do, whether it's romantic friendship, whatever, you should spend time with them. You should find a way to spend as much of the time that you have left with them because nothing's guaranteed. She has this information. It's all sort of coalescing in her brain. All these examples are right here. Now, whether or not she's actually hearing it and in internalizing it is a whole other process. Absolutely. As we get ready to return to Patty's place, Philippa embarks on a sea change of a romantic journey herself, and that paves the way for Anne to open her mind about romance. While she was visiting a cousin, Phil meets Jonas Blake, a theological student training to be a minister who is working at a local mission church for the summer. 
Jonas is quite ugly, according to Phil, but has a lovely voice, a beautiful soul and disposition. Phil goes to hear him preach, and he is so earnest and sincere and clearly devoted to his work that she both falls in love with him and is instantly sure he could never love her, that he deserves a wife who is grand and strong and noble, not frivolous and fickle like Phil thinks that she is. As she writes to Anne, she says, Anne Shirley, don't you dare say or hint or think that I've fallen in love with Mr. Blake. Could I care for a lank, poor, ugly theologue named Jonas? As Uncle Mark says, it's impossible. And what's more, it's improbable. I'm so happy for Philippa. I'm so happy that she found someone who knocked her on her heels a little bit and took her out of her sort of Alec and Alonzo whirlwind, right? We've been talking a lot this episode about how Anne won't let herself really reckon with the idea of romance. Well, Phil was much in the same boat until Jonas. Until Jonas. Phil doesn't live up in her daydreams and ideals the way that Anne does, but she did think she knew what kind of man and what kind of life she was going to live up until she met Jonas. Phil told Anne on their very first meeting when explaining that she came to Redmond to put off having to get married that, quote, I must marry a rich man, you know, honey, you couldn't imagine me being a poor man's wife, could you? I can't do a single useful thing and I'm very extravagant. Oh no, my husband must have heaps of money. And later in this discussion, she states plainly, I simply couldn't marry a man who wasn't handsome. Phil goes on to explain that she had narrowed her bows down to two based on age and money and still couldn't decide. And when Anne asks if she doesn't love either of them, Phil says, oh, goodness, no, I couldn't love anybody. It isn't in me. Besides, I wouldn't want to. Being in love makes you a perfect slave, I think. And it would give a man such power to hurt you. I'd be afraid. So Phil starts off being very much Anne's opposite at the beginning of the book, but she had to evolve just as Anne did in a parallel manner. Phil had to let go of what she thought her life and romantic relationships would look like. She had to be open to love in an unexpected place within most unexpected person. She also has to chance being vulnerable, the very thing she was hoping to avoid by never falling in love. And to Phil's credit, for a girl who couldn't make up her mind about what hat to wear, she doesn't wrestle long with her feelings about Jonas. By the time the girls reconvene at Patty's place for the start of the school year, Phil and Jonas are seeing quite a lot of each other. Jonas coming up most Fridays from his school to spend the day. The other girls and Aunt Jimsy think Phil is just flirting with Jonas and are disapproving, but Phil tells them frankly, I mean to make him ask me to marry him if I can. Phil's never made up her mind about anything this easily, but she's listening to her heart and is open to this huge shift in her life. And I wonder how much seeing this change in Phil gives Anne some of the inspiration that she needs to start thinking of romance in a more tangible way. We've discussed how Anne doesn't have examples of romance that feel real to her, but she can't deny the real connection between Phil and Jonas. Seeing Philippa gives Anne permission, I think, to start making romance more real in her own life. In a parallel journey to Phil, Anne meets Roy Gardner in November. Anne had been strolling in the drizzle in the park when the storm picks up suddenly and turns her umbrella inside out, and out of nowhere, a quote, tall, handsome, and distinguished-looking, dark, melancholy, inscrutable eyes, melting, musical, sympathetic voice, yes, the very hero of her dreams stood before her in the flesh. He could not have more closely resembled her ideal if he had been made to order. Roy offers Anne his umbrella, and they take shelter in a little pavilion in the park. They become acquainted. Roy Gardner is a junior at Redmond like Anne, but had been in Europe for the past two years with his ailing mother, so they had not yet crossed paths. Roy recognizes Anne from her giving a paper at a recent event, and he sounds impressed with Anne's academic excellence. 
Remember that back in Anne of Avonlea, as Anne is noticing Gilbert is growing into a handsome young man, she compares him to her ideal, thinking she and Diana had long ago decided what kind of a man they admired, and their tastes seemed exactly similar. He must be very tall and distinguished looking, with melancholy inscrutable eyes and a melting, sympathetic voice. So Maud uses these exact words to describe Roy in Anne's first encounter with him. She's so, so, so smart. And of course, it's this romantic meet cute right out of a storybook with Roy as Anne's gallant rescuer and the dramatic setting of the rainstorm and the umbrella turned inside out. Anne is quite swept away. Roy is intelligent, sincerely flattering, and it turns out that he's very wealthy as well. He immediately sends Anne roses, and after hearing the story and filling Anne in on the Gardner family status, Phil says, almost do I envy you, but not quite. After all, Roy Gardner isn't Jonas. Love has certainly changed Phil. I love that little moment because Phil had always seemed so shallow Mm -hmm. in the way that she thought about men and love. And here, just a few months into meeting Jonas, somebody that's handsome and rich and elegant like Roy can't even hold a candle to the man that she loves. Here's the problem, though, with ideals. Once you get it, you don't stop to question if that's really what you want, if this ideal is really what or who fits into your life as you really are. Anne's ideals rest on what she thinks a hero looks like, not about what his personality is like or what their interactions would be like or how she'll feel in his company. She never bothered to imagine those. Anne thinks as she drifted off to sleep, had the real prince come at last? Recalling those glorious dark eyes which had gazed so deeply into her own, Anne was very strongly inclined to think that he had. Well, in contrast, Phil is embracing at lightning speed her blooming relationship with Jonas. She worries that Jonas doesn't really love her, that she's not serious enough for him. Anne tells her, Mr. Blake is afraid to ask you to marry him, Phil. He is poor and can't offer you a home such as you have always had. You know that is the only reason he hasn't spoken long ago. I suppose so, agreed Phil dolefully. Well, if you won't ask me to marry him, I'll ask him. That's all. So it's bound to come right. Oh, Phil, you go for it. (laughs) Little proto-feminist there. And then Phil drops the news that Gilbert has been seen going around town with Christine Stewart, a music student. Anne had been in the middle of getting dressed to go to a dance with Roy, but this news somehow flattens her usual sparkle. Phil chatters on about how it worked out that Anne refused Gilbert because Roy was clearly foreordained for Anne, and Gilbert is apparently quite crazy about the pretty Christine. Quote, Anne did not blush, as she usually did when the girls assumed her eventual marriage to Roy Gardner was a settled thing. All at once, she felt rather dull. And at the dance, Anne is a bit subdued, although she seems to have a nice time. She, quote, was acutely conscious that Gilbert was standing under the palms just across the room talking to a girl who must be Christine Stewart. Turns out that Christine, quote, looks just as I've always wanted to look, thought Anne miserably. Rose leaf complexion, starry violet eyes, raven hair. Yes, she has them all. It's a wonder her name isn't Cordelia Fitzgerald in the bargain. I love how witty Maude is here. She's created these two roadblocks to Anne and Gilbert's future happiness in Roy and Christine, and they are essentially Anne's childhood fantasies come to life. We've been talking all episode about how Anne's major hurdle to romance is that she has to extinguish some of her ideals, and then the human manifestation of those ideals actually show up in the story. You know, now Anne is in a position where she truly has to slay the dragons of her past. From this point in the story on, we see that Anne's feelings are confused again. (laughs) 
Yeah. Is there a better word for it? Probably confused. (laughs) Confused. She likes Roy and he's everything she thought she ever wanted. But Gilbert keeps intruding her thoughts in unexpected ways. Phil asks Anne directly if she loves Roy and Anne hedges with, I suppose so. The book goes on to say, quote, she felt like she ought to be blushing while making such a confession, but she was not. On the other hand, she always blushed hotly when anyone said anything about Gilbert Blythe or Christine Stewart in her hearing. As for Roy, of course she was in love with him. Madly so. How could she help it? Was he not her ideal? Who could resist those glorious dark eyes and that pleading voice? And what a charming sonnet he had sent her with a box of violets on her birthday. To be told in rhythmical cadences that her eyes were the stars of the morning, that her cheek had the flush it stole from the sunrise, that her lips were redder than the roses of paradise, was thrillingly romantic. Gilbert would never have dreamed of writing a sonnet to her eyebrow. But then... Gilbert could see a joke. She had once told Roy a funny story, and he had not seen the point of it. She recalled the chummy laugh she and Gilbert had had together over it, and wondered uneasily if life with a man who had no sense of humor might not be somewhat uninteresting in the long run. But who could expect a melancholy, inscrutable hero to see the humorous side of things? And listen to this impulse. Right? Being married to someone you can't laugh with is not worth it. (laughs) Absolutely. Toward the end of the school year, Jonas finally asks Phil to marry him, and Phil is the happiest girl in the world. Phil confesses that she sneezed three times while he was asking me. Wasn't that horrid? But I said yes, almost before he finished. I was so afraid he might change his mind and stop. I'm besottedly happy. I couldn't really believe before that Jonas would ever care for frivolous me. Anne reminds her that she's not as frivolous as she pretends, and Phil says that, quote, Jonas knows the real me and loves me, frivolity and all and I love him. And I never was so surprised in my life as when I found out that I loved him. I never thought it was possible to fall in love with an ugly man. I mean, how ugly can Jonas be, do you think? He, he probably looks fine. I'm sure. I think he's just not handsome. He's, yeah, he's just not dashing. <laughs> Anne is delighted for Phil. And while she teases her, noting that Phil had once declared she'd never marry a man who wasn't rich, she can truly celebrate her happiness. This really contrasts with her feelings about Diana marrying Fred, which is the next big event in the book. Well, to a certain extent, Anne treats Diana like an extension of herself, as we sometimes do with our childhood friends. Sure. Anne and Diana's ideals had been, quote, exactly the same. And so Diana being engaged to Fred kind of directly threatens Anne's ideas of romance. Anne says, he certainly isn't the wild, dashing, wicked young man Diana once wanted to marry. Fred is extremely good. And I think that's damning him with fate praise. I mean, I think she likes Fred. She thinks he's a nice guy, but she really doesn't understand how the Diana of her childhood could fall in love with such a good guy. She doesn't know yet that a good guy is who you want to marry. Is who you want to marry. You don't want to marry the dashing, inscrutable hero. You want to marry the good guy who makes you laugh. And why is that so hard to understand? I know. (laughs) Well, Phil and Jonas can be a more gentle model for Anne to observe and learn from. Phil changed and let her ideas about romance change. Diana changed too, but Anne still wants to hold Diana to her childhood ideals, kind of preserving that in Amber. And she doesn't do that to Phil. Anne thinks, oh, how horrible it is that people have to grow up and marry and change. Diana's marriage forces Anne to confront change. Between that and Phil's example, something is starting to be broken down for Anne. A wall is maybe starting to crack a little bit. Right. 
You know, Anne just needs to have the self-awareness to realize that she is holding both herself and Diana to this unreasonable standard for romance. And I want her to be able to give them both the grace that she so joyfully and genuinely is extending to Phil. Right? Why does Phil get to change and evolve, but Diana and, and Anne have to remain, you know, stuck in amber? Well, I think that's a very good point, but I think it goes back to this idea of that childhood trauma, right? Diana was her first friend and Diana was just as much of an ideal for Anne as her ideals of romance, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Right. We talk so much about her claiming Diana as a bosom friend immediately. How much of that was because Diana fit the bill? And how much of it was their genuine friendship? Ultimately, it was kind of a mixed bag, right? It ended up becoming part a little bit of both. And luckily for Anne, right? Diana was open to her friendship, charmed by Anne, Mm -hmm. willing to put in. And the two of them grew together in this really lovely, beautiful way that was really important. But Diana has been, in part, as much of Anne's projection onto her as she is herself. But she met Phil. Phil was already a fully formed adult. Yeah. Phil and Anne were able to meet each other sort of on different terms. Anne's conception of herself is not dependent on Phil. Yes. Whether or not Phil likes her, whether or not she and Phil have things in common, right? She likes Phil. The two of them are great chums and have lots in common and get along great. But their friendship is not tied into Anne's worthiness the way Diana and Anne's friendship is. Right. Diana, as we talked about all in our first season, we talked about Diana really early because she is one of the tentpole relationships of Anne's kind of recovery from abuse. Absolutely. So of course she's putting these really high, almost impossibly high at this point standards on Diana. And It's not fair to Diana, who has grown and changed and evolved naturally, you know, and is ready to marry Fred. I mean, let's celebrate Fred and Diana. How wonderful for them. Right? They seem lovely and happy together. Anyway, (laughs) after Diana's wedding, Anne goes to teach for the rest of the summer at the Valley Road School and has three rather comedic encounters that help her further drop some of her romantic idealism. An elderly Mrs. Skinner drives Anne to her boarding house and regales her with Mrs. Skinner's recent romance, having just married Thomas a month ago. Anne struggles to see if someone like Mrs. Skinner being embroiled in a romantic triangle, but Mrs. Skinner shares how she was being courted by two men, one of whom was very rich. Thomas is poor, but Mrs. Skinner loved him. So though the other man looked better on paper, she decided on Thomas and says she thought to herself, you can marry your rich man if you like, but you won't be happy. Folks can't get along together in this world without a little bit of love. So, you know, this is going to be one of many little lessons for Anne to tuck into her pocket for later. Anne also gets a proposal from Sam, the hired man, which is the very definition of unromantic with a will you have me kind of out of nowhere. Will you have me? (laughs) But her sense of humor about it has developed significantly since her proposal from Billy. And she can laugh it off and find it funny in a way that she never could about Billy and Charlie. So we're seeing some of that growth from her. Her ideals around proposals are no longer so precious that she's offended if someone asks her to marry him. And Anne is witness to the dramatic conclusion of Janet Sweet and John Douglas's long courtship. So long. So long. 20 years. Just as Anne is encouraging Janet to move on from John, who has been walking her home for 20 years but has never proposed, John's mother finally dies, and it turns out that the mother had been pretty much holding John hostage with her health, threatening to die if he marries while she's still alive. So awful. 
Yeah. And also making John promise not to tell Janet what the situation is. So to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what lesson Anne is supposed to learn from this, except not to wait forever or also be careful of your mother-in-law. <laughs> I don't know. It stretches over several chapters. So I think it's supposed to be relevant in some way. Yeah, I think this ties back thematically because it does show, Anne, that when you love someone, you've just got to be able to stand up for yourself and go for it. You know, Janet and John lived in limbo for decades. And unless Anne can find some clear feelings on how she feels about Roy, about Gilbert, about herself, she's going to be in a similar situation, right? She is in this sort of emotional limbo in a similar way because she won't take the time to really examine her feelings about romance at this point. Well done. I do think that that works. All right. Uh, <laughs> that's what that English degree was worth. <laughs> that was good, right? It is this like interlude that's a little shoehorned in that, I don't know, it's a little awkward. Yeah, you get the sense that maybe Maud just like wrote some funny little regionalist stories and then was like, I know, I'll toss these into Anna the Island. <laughs> right, right, right. We need some filler. <laughs> well, we're going to move into the last year at Redmond. Anne and Gilbert are friendly and cordial with each other when they see each other. Diana's wedding had given them a chance to reconnect in a way, but they rarely see each other. Gilbert is working extra hard to achieve honors in his hopes of going to medical school, and Anne is being escorted to every event by the attentive Roy. When Anne and Stella spend an evening reading over the old story club efforts, Anne gets a chance to see how much her own view of romance has already changed. Anne laughs as she says, my heroine is disporting herself at a ball, glittering from head to foot with large diamonds of the first water. But what booted beauty or rich attire? The paths of glory lead but to the grave. They must either be murdered or die of a broken heart. There is no escape for them. <laughs> Young Anne thought these stories were the height of romance, and she built her ideal man on the heroes that she created in those pages. So being able to laugh a little at the absurdity of how the heroines are dressed and the dramatic ways they perished is paving the way for Anne to be able to let go of her ideal man as well. Anne also meets Roy's mother and sisters, and despite connecting with the younger sister, Dorothy, Anne knows that the older sister and mother aren't kindred spirits. She doesn't say so, but I can't help wondering if this also gives Anne another little nudge. Maud is laying some neat groundwork here and giving Anne a lot of information to help her make her decision about Roy. Graduation rolls around faster than Anne could imagine, and since Maud only gives us two chapters before the graduation chapter, it's fast for us too as the readers. I know, right? We just zoom right into this. <laughs> As Anne is preparing for convocation, she first plans to wear the violets that Roy had sent her. Anne knows that everyone is expecting Roy to propose at any moment, and Anne expects it herself. But then she sees the lilies of the valley, quote, as fresh and fragrant as those which bloomed in the Green Gables yard when June came to Avonlea, that Gilbert has sent her. Anne is surprised by the flowers since they've hardly seen each other at all this year. But at the last minute, she decides to carry Gilbert's flowers instead of Roy's. The book says she could not have told why she did it. Somehow, old Avonlea days and dreams and friendships seemed very close to her in this attainment of her long-cherished ambitions. She and Gilbert had once pictured out merrily the day on which they should be capped and gowned graduates in arts. The wonderful day had come, and Roy's violets had no place in it. Only her old friend's flowers seemed to belong to this fruition of old blossoming hopes which he had once shared. The book then tells us there's a flash in Gilbert's eyes when he sees the flowers and a pained glance from Roy as he notices too. And it also tells us that Anne feels a strange pang that spoils this day for her that she can't quite pinpoint. Okay, this is bananas. Bananas, Reagan. <laughs> I hate 
And I love this scene equally. On the one hand, of course, sensitive Anne is following her heart and she knows that Gilbert's flowers belong with her on this special day. But if that is true, Reagan... She also must know by now how she really feels about Gilbert and about Roy, right? She must. She must. It is unbelievable to me at this point that there are still a few chapters before she's really like, oh, wow. You know, I think I love Gilbert. Who knew? I mean, <laughs> I think it goes to show how hard Anne is working at not coming to this conclusion. I mean, we have made every excuse for her this entire podcast, Reagan. We have come up with all the reasons why Anne isn't ready for love, why she doesn't see Gilbert as her love. We've gone down the whole list. But at this point with the flowers, I'm just like, no, none of that matters. Anne, get it together. (laughs) Well, okay. Let's just add a little fuel to the fire here. So that (laughs) evening when Anne is dressing for the graduation dance, instead of her usual pearl beads, she chooses to wear a little pink enamel heart necklace that Gilbert has sent her for Christmas. Of course she does. The card had only said, with all good wishes from your old chum, Gilbert, but it had made Anne laugh at the memory of carrots and the pink candy heart that Gilbert had tried to apologize with. So she puts it on. And as she and Phil walk to the dance, Phil drops that she heard that Gilbert and Christine's engagement will be announced once convocation is over. Anne's face burns hotly and she tears off the necklace. And when Gilbert asks her for a dance, she says her dance card is full. Petty. Petty. This is so petty. She wore his flowers to convocation. So, of course, he's going to ask her for a dance later that night. Anne is like the queen of mixed messages. And she is just beyond frustrating in this moment. And I know we discussed to death every reason why we think she's so slow to embrace her romantic connection with Gilbert. But at this point, it is starting to strain credulity. Well, no, no, no. I think this moment a little bit, it is petty. I totally am on it. So petty. She crushes the beautiful little enamel heart. Anne. Well, she breaks the chain. So maybe the heart's okay. I don't know. Okay. Okay. But I think the thing is she had been inching her way and then hearing this again, it's just gossip. And she never stops to think, wait, what evidence do I have that Gilbert and Christine are getting engaged? Or like, how about when he asks me to dance, I just ask him straight out. But this has always been her thing with this little bit of jealousy. She's so, so vulnerable that just the Mm. hint that Gilbert might choose Christine, the ideal. The hint of a possible rejection. Right. It's a possible rejection. And remember, Christine looks like Anne has always wanted to look. Right. Raven hair, starry violet eyes. Right. So of course, Anne feels like Gilbert will prefer her. Yeah. It takes this tiny little hint of just this drop of gossip. And she's like, nope, 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 nope. Too scary. You could just see it. It's like her armor just like comes all clanging back up. All that over is exactly, body. exactly the image. Yeah. Oh, Anne. So as the girls are packing at Patty's place, Roy comes to ask Anne for a walk. Everyone knows a proposal is in the offing. Stella says, Roy is a nice fellow and all that, but there's really nothing in him. She goes on, I love Anne and I like Roy. Everyone says she's making a brilliant match. And even Mrs. Gardner thinks her charming now. It all sounds as if it were made in heaven. But I have my doubts. Smart Stella is all I have to say here. Anne has really good friends who know her really well. She really does. A proposal is in the offing, and it's as romantic as Anne could wish. Roy takes her to the little pavilion in the park where they had first met, and his proposal's beautifully worded and deeply sincere, though Maude doesn't say exactly what he says. I 
feel like I might have accepted Roy's proposal in this moment. <laughs> you would be swept off your feet. With I this. probably would be. I'd just be like, yeah, this is good. This is good. But Anne realizes that she's not feeling thrilled as she opens her mouth to accept, quote, she found herself trembling as if she was reeling back from a precipice. To her came one of those moments when we realize, as by blinding flash of illumination, more than all our previous years have taught us. So she says she can't marry him. Roy is dumbstruck and is caught by her surprise herself. And when pressed by Roy, she says it's that she doesn't care enough for him. Roy declares that Anne is the only one he can ever love, but he leaves graciously. Anne sits for a long time on her own. Maud tells us it was her hour of humiliation and self-contempt and shame. Their waves went over her. And yet underneath it all was a queer sense of recovered freedom. And that tells you right there that it was clearly the right decision. When Anne gets back to Patty's place, Phil is waiting for her, expecting to celebrate. And Phil is stunned as well, saying, He's handsome and clever and rich and good. What more do you want? And for the first time, Anne is truly honest with herself. And she says, I want someone who belongs in my life. He doesn't. I was swept off my feet at first by his good looks and knack of paying romantic compliments. And later on, I thought I must be in love because he was my dark-eyed ideal. Phil comforts Anne saying, things are so mixed up in real life. They aren't clear cut and trimmed off as they are in novels. And certainly who would know better than Phil, right? Phil, whose romantic trajectory was so far from what she anticipated for herself. So truly, Philippa was a perfect friend for Anne this year. Anne returns to Green Gables, feeling like everything is off. Diana is pregnant, and Jane gets married in a shower of diamonds to a millionaire she met out west. Phil marries Joe as well, with Anne as a bridesmaid, saying, quote, I'm so happy my heart aches with it. Diana's baby is born. And while Anne is happy for her dearest friend, she feels separated from her. She feels stuck as everyone else is moving on with happiness to a new chapter in their lives. Anne goes to spend a few weeks at Echo Lodge and to duck all the town gossip about Anne's lack of romantic prospects. When she finally returns, Davy blurts out that Gilbert Blythe is dying. He had taken ill of typhoid, and because he had been run down from studying, it was a terrible case and the outlook is bleak. Anne goes white with shock and spends the entire night sleepless, keeping a vigil at the window, looking out to the storm. She realizes in a thunderstruck moment that she loves Gilbert. Quote, there's a book of revelation in everyone's life as there is in the Bible. Anne read hers that bitter night as she kept her agonized vigil through hours of storm and darkness. She loved Gilbert, had always loved him. She knew that now. She knew that she could no more cast him out of her life without agony than she could have cut off her right hand and cast it from her. And the knowledge had come too late. Too late even for the bitter solace of being with him at the last. What a fool she had been to not realize what the bond was that had held her to Gilbert. To think that the flattered fancy she had felt for Roy Gardner had been love. I love that passage, by the way. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is probably the passage that I read most often as a kid that was I felt was the highest romantic ideal. <laughs> staring at the window at the storm, wondering if the object of your affection, who you finally realize you actually love, is going to make it through the night. That's great stuff. Great stuff. <laughs> so in the morning, the storm clears and Anne sees the hired man from the farm next door to Gilbert's coming down the lane. She calls out to him to ask about Gilbert and Pacifique said that he turned the corner last night and the doctor says he's through the worst of it. Anne suddenly tastes the sweetness of life again. Now, it seems that Anne doesn't tell Gilbert just then about her revelation. Uh. As I know, right? 
As we next see that it's several weeks later and Gilbert comes to ask Anne for a walk in the woods. Anne can't join him just then, but promises tomorrow. Gilbert has made no romantic overtures to Anne in this time, so Anne has decided he must love Christine Stewart after all. Quote, in the light of common day, her radiant certainty of that rapt morning had faded. She was haunted by the miserable fear that her mistake could never be rectified. Anne has determined that she will focus on her career, having lost the chance with Gilbert. But the next evening, the two walk off to Hester Gray's abandoned garden. And when Gilbert's voice shifts in importance, Anne's heart beat wildly. But she is afraid to expect anything, so she keeps her answers light. Luckily, Gilbert isn't distracted. And finally, he says, I have a dream. I persist in dreaming it, although it has often seemed to me that it could never come true. I dream of a home with a hearth fire in it, a cat and a dog, the footsteps of friends, and you. Anne could not speak, but she lifted her eyes, shining with all the love rapture of countless generations, and looked into his for a moment. He wanted no other answer. Ugh, that is just always, I love it. <laughs> always my favorite moment. I also like how there's a cat and a dog in his dream. Good yeah. job, Gilbert. Good job, Gilbert. But that's the thing, right? When Anne is building her castle in Spain, when she's dreaming of her homo dreams, yep. it's still not feeling right, right? But Gilbert has yep. built a home of dreams and it's a simple one, right? It's a home with a hearth fire, a cat, a dog, footsteps of friends coming up the walk and the person he loves. Yeah. No, I really love this. It's an attainable dream. It's a dream that feels real and it's a dream that Anne fits in. Yeah. So the two of them talk and clear up some loose ends and misunderstandings. Gilbert confesses he has loved Anne since she broke her slate over his head. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and that he had given up hope once Roy had arrived on the scene. But Phil had written to him just after his fever broke, telling him there was nothing between Anne and Roy and he should try again. And then we get one of my favorite lines. I'll have to ask you to wait a long time, Anne. It will be three years before I'll finish my medical course. And even then, there will be no diamond sunbursts and marble halls. Anne laughed. I don't want sunbursts and marble halls. I just want you. I love Phil playing Cupid here right at the end, too. She knew that these two might need just a little intervention. Just, just a nudge. Anne has truly left her ideals behind and embraced a real, true love that fits her life that understands her and knows her deeply. And she has learned from Phil, Diana, Miss Lavender, even Mrs. Skinner. Yep. <laughs> that love doesn't always look like you expect it to or take the course you think it will take. But if you're open to it, you'll find the love that's exactly right for you. Anne could never have been happy with Roy, a lovely man, but one who doesn't laugh with her, understand her or challenge her the way that Gilbert does. <sighs> I love the ending of this book. I love this proposal scene. And you know what, Reagan? It is just hardwired in me as being the pinnacle of romance. Uh, me too. <laughs> All right. So in today's Birch Path, I really wanted to talk about Pride and Prejudice. I just don't think we can talk about romance in Ella Montgomery's works without discussing Jane Austen. And talking about Pride and Prejudice alongside Anne of the Island is a great place to start. First of all, Maud loved Austen. She wrote in her journal after rereading Emma, quote, there are some things I'm not sick of, and one of them is Jane Austen's novels. Same girl, same. We know for sure that Maud owned at least three of Austen's novels, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, and Emma, because these works are now housed, along with the rest of her extant personal library, at the University of Guelph's library's special collection. 
And as this collection comprises only a part of Maud's library, it's probable that she did own other Austen works. Montgomery scholar and biographer Mary Rubio believes that Maud read all of Jane Austen many times, as she did with any work that she particularly enjoyed. And Maud spoke of Austen along with the other great writers she admired, which makes a lot of sense. Austen was a famous author in her own time and has been consistently popular for the past 200 years. I think that a lot of the popularity comes from Austen's ability to do exactly what we've been talking about today, weaving together real life with high romance. In fact, I think Austen sort of set a template for how other authors could tell deeply romantic stories that still felt like they were parts of real everyday life. Prior to Austen, romantic novels and storytelling had certainly existed, but much of it was heightened, melodramatic, gothic, or chivalric. It was rarer by far to find stories of normal people living more or less normal lives and finding deep true love. Now, I guess we can debate whether Austen's characters, who are, of course, all landed gentry or minor nobility, count as quote-unquote normal people. I mean, they are certainly very privileged people. But by normal people, I think I just mean people who live in the real world, with real stakes and consequences that make sense for the time and place they live in. And likewise, Maud, who we described last season as a regionalist, is also writing about people who live in the real world and who seem to exist in a realistic, naturalistic sort of a way. I'm going to kind of plunge ahead and assume our listeners are familiar with Pride and Prejudice. If you aren't, go read it or go watch the incredible 2005 movie version of it directed by Joe Wright. The 1995 miniseries is also iconic and I also love that. So from here on out, plot spoilers for Pride and Prejudice, which I don't know y'all, it's over 200 years old. So (laughs) just go read it or watch it already. The hero of Pride and Prejudice is Mr. Darcy, who is this proud, haughty, rich man who gets off on the wrong foot with Elizabeth Bennet, our spirited, winsome heroine. And I want to talk really quickly about why Mr. Darcy is such an enduring and inspirational hero even 200 years later. It's not because he's melancholy and brooding, <clears throat> Anne, although those are sometimes characteristics ascribed to him. And in fact, a closer textual read shows that Darcy is fundamentally very shy. He's also a little sheltered, uneasy in crowded social interaction, and that he relies heavily on the rules of etiquette and standards of behavior to help him navigate interpersonal situations. So a lot of what initially reads as pride and snobbery to Elizabeth and to the reader is just Darcy's natural modesty, his shyness, his awkwardness. So when Darcy proposes to Elizabeth about a third of the way through Pride and Prejudice, it's a mess, right? Not unlike Gilbert's first proposal to Anne. Elizabeth takes Darcy to task for his behavior in the book up to that point when she's turning him down. She calls him rude and she calls him snobbish and she gives him specific examples of when he's acted that way. She tells him no and she tells him to leave her alone. Now, we later find out that Elizabeth doesn't actually have all the context, so she's wrong about some of her accusations, but she's not wrong overall that he has been rude to her and to her family. And this is the moment. You might not see it because, right, this is like Darcy when he's down, but this is actually the moment where Darcy becomes a great romantic lead. Because instead of fighting with Elizabeth, instead of going on the offensive to woo her and trying again, he does exactly as she asks. He leaves her. He writes a letter clarifying some of the information she has so she understands he's not a complete jerk, but otherwise he leaves her alone. He also takes her very valid criticisms that he was rude to her and to her family to heart, and he changes his behavior, later welcoming Elizabeth and her aunt and uncle to his home and being an impeccable host, and then helping to find Elizabeth's sister Lydia after her ruinous elopement. By the time Darcy proposes a second time, 
successfully this time. He's grown and changed and become a better person because he listened to Elizabeth. You guys, this whole book, this classic of romantic literature is really just about a guy who listens to the girl he likes and believes her when she tells him things. And that is the gold standard for romance in the English language for the past two centuries. Just what does that tell you about men? I don't know. But you know what? That's part of the reason why it's interesting, right? Why women have gravitated towards Pride and Prejudice as a story for so many generations. And we see that Darcy and Gilbert are pretty similar in this way. They both take true responsibilities for their faults, whether it's Gilbert, who is spending years trying to apologize to Anne for calling her carrots, and also acknowledging specifically how he harmed her. And Darcy and Gilbert are also men of action more than words. Darcy's grand gesture, of course, is rescuing Lydia and by extension, Elizabeth and her whole family. Gilbert demonstrates his genuine care and concern for Anne in many ways. And of course, it's giving Anne the Avonlea school and allowing her to stay at Green Gables at a moment when she's most needed at home, which truly is what begins to thaw Anne toward him. Well, and one of those things about both Darcy and Gilbert in those moments is they make those grand gestures, but they're not making those grand gestures to win her back. They're doing these things because they are the right thing to Correct. do, right? And they are grand in the way that they allow both Anne and Elizabeth to view them not through their worst mistake. That's really beautifully put, Reagan. I also think the similarity in the grand gesture is that they both do something that gives the object of their affection, right, Lizzie or Anne, the opportunity to live their fullest life. There are a few similarities between the plot structure of Anne and Gilbert's romantic arc and Elizabeth and Darcy's romantic arc as well. They both get off to a rocky start. Gilbert, of course, by calling Anne carrots. Darcy by saying Elizabeth was, quote, not handsome enough to tempt me. <laughs> both of them will be eating their words in short order. <laughs> Neither Elizabeth nor Anne is particularly impressed, but the young women of the village of Meryton and Pride and Prejudice and the young girls of the Avonlea schoolhouse are both equally smitten with Darcy and Gilbert. Lizzie and Anne are in this world where everybody's saying, oh my goodness, he's so handsome, you know, all of this. And they're sort of these outliers and that they're like, mm, no, not for me. And then there's that dramatic tension, this dramatic romantic tension between Darcy and Lizzie and Anne and Gilbert, which also then will spur those heroines on to be the best versions of themselves. For Elizabeth, who is already known to be witty, she becomes even more engaging and lively in social settings. She really is shining brightly in a space where Darcy particularly does not do well. And Anne, of course, uses her anger at Gilbert to fuel her studies, becoming an accomplished scholar and earning her way into Queen's. Later on, when Gilbert and Darcy realize how they felt about their respective heroines, they both push too hard too soon. In Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth is absolutely bewildered and then rightly offended by Darcy's first proposal, and Anne is both surprised and dismayed by Gilbert's first proposal in Anne of the Island. And both Darcy and Gilbert are pretty upset to be refused. Darcy insults Elizabeth's family. Gilbert laughs bitterly and tells Anne her friendship is not enough for him, which is hurtful to Anne, who we know prizes Gilbert's friendship so deeply. But both men accept their rejection and leave. In both cases, those proposals are disasters, but they effectively change the trajectory of the plot, giving those men something to live up to and giving Anne and Elizabeth time to figure out what they really want. At the end of their respective books, when the men do propose successfully, I also can't help but notice the many similarities between the two proposal scenes. And believe me, like I said earlier, this is hardwired in me. When I see it, I notice it. So in both scenes, 
The two characters are out on a walk. They're enjoying a beautiful day outside. They're part of the natural world. And this outdoor setting is actually reinforcing that these characters are meant to be together. They're natural together. I think that's so important because both of them sort of lived in a time when the maybe more predictable thing would have been to be in a drawing room or a parlor or some sort of artificial, elegant setting. But no, Anne and Gilbert and Lizzie and Darcy are part of the natural world during these proposal moments. And in these moments, both couples have a time to acknowledge everything they've been through recently that's led up to this. For Anne and Gilbert, that's Gilbert's illness. And for Elizabeth and Darcy, that's Lydia's unfortunate elopement. Darcy says to Elizabeth, but your family owe me nothing. Much as I respect them, I believe I thought only of you. Elizabeth was too much embarrassed to say a word. After a short pause, her companion added, you are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. Elizabeth feeling all the more than common awkwardness and anxiety of the situation now forced herself to speak and immediately, though not very fluently, gave him to understand that her sentiments had undergone so material a change since the period to which he alluded as to make her receive with gratitude and pleasure his present assurances. The happiness which this reply produced was such as he had probably never felt before, and he expressed himself on the occasion as sensibly and as warmly as a man violently in love can be supposed to do. I'm pretty sure that's Austin speak for kissing. (laughs) Had Elizabeth been able to encounter his eyes, she might have seen how well the expression of heartfelt delight diffused over his face became him. But though she could not look, she could listen. And he told her of feelings which, in proving of what importance she was to him, made his affection every moment more valuable. They walked on, without knowing what direction. There was too much to be thought, and felt, and said, for attention to any other objects. Oh, it's so good. So good. (laughs) Okay, so now let's look at Anne Gilbert's proposal scene. I'm not going to read all of it because we did go over it earlier in in the episode, but just to show you some of these similarities. So here, of course, again, we start with Anne. Anne says, It wouldn't do for us to have all our dreams fulfilled. We would be as good as dead if we had nothing left to dream about. What a delicious aroma that low descending sun is extracting from the asters and ferns. I wish we could see perfumes as well as smell them. I'm sure they would be very beautiful. I really just get the sense that Anne is just like... (laughs) She's babbling. She's babbling. She's going to look back on this on this and be like, God damn, was I talking about seeing perfumes? Idiot. Whimsical and then they're seeing perfumes. Like truly. (laughs) Anyway, Gilbert was not to be thus sidetracked. And then he launches into his speech where he explains that he has a dream. And he pictures Anne in his home of dreams. And that's pretty perfect, as we quoted earlier. The text continues, quote, Anne wanted to speak, but she could find no words. Happiness was breaking over her like a wave. It almost frightened her. Gilbert says, I asked you a question over two years ago, Anne. If I ask it again today, will you give me a different answer? Still, Anne could not speak, but she lifted her eyes, shining with all the love rapture of countless generations, and looked into his for a moment. He wanted no other answer. They lingered in the old garden until twilight. Sweet as dusk in Eden must have been, crept over it. There was so much to talk about and recall, things said and done and heard and thought and felt and misunderstood. I mean, look at how similar these proposals are. They really are. I never thought to put them side by side like that. Down to the beats, right? Yes. Darcy says, if your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. You know, my affections and wishes are unchanged. Gilbert says, I asked you a question over two years ago, Anne. If I ask it again today, will you give me a different answer? Both Lizzie and Anne are sort of stunned into silence. Lizzie Mm -hmm. kind of like gets it together (laughs) enough to articulate a response. And Anne just like looks lovingly at Gilbert. And then you have these great 
parallel lines at the end as they're sort of wandering through the through the meadows together. In Pride and Prejudice, you have there's too much to be thought and felt and said for attention to any other objects. And then in Anne of the Islands, you have there was so much to talk over and recall, things said and done and heard and thought and felt and misunderstood. That mm-hmm. blueprint of Pride and Prejudice is all over this scene. And I don't know about you, but I just want to live in these moments. Really? They're so beautifully romantic. Notice that neither Gilbert nor Mr. Darcy says, will you marry me? Right? Mm -hmm. There's none of that sort of ham-fisted proposal of, will you have me? Or would you (laughs) become Mrs. Charlie Sloan? Each says in their own quiet, serious way that they would be happiest with the heroine. And then, of course, Elizabeth and Anne each have the experience of being speechless, right? Here are two of the wittiest, chattiest heroines in all of literature, and they are both love-struck into silence. And then they both have this beautiful denouement moment of continuing on their walk and sorting through sort of the old misunderstandings. It's just like, this is the same scene. <laughs> yeah. I, I just love it. Just Austin showed everyone how to do it, and then Maud just leveled it up <laughs> and knocked it out of the park. <laughs> I love that both of these books celebrate normal people who actually have a lot of learning and growing to do and still manage to find their way to one another. And I think that's why we're still reading these books. I think that's exactly why we're still reading those books. Well, Kindred Spirit, I think we've probably mentioned all of our favorite moments in today's show. So we'll skip Puff Sleeves moments for this episode because this whole episode was one big, perfect Puff Sleeve. So let's move right into our Anne-inspired recommendations. Kelly, how are you inspired by Anne? My recommendation for this episode is actually a fun shopping rack. Did you all know that the New York Public Library has an awesome store? They do sell books but they also sell desk accessories and wearable items inspired by the library. So you can have your very own desk lions that look like patience and fortitude, the NYPL's iconic statues. They also have silk scarves inspired by the library's collection of Audubon art and scented candles that are meant to evoke rooms in the library. It is a seriously cool shop and would be great for gifts for readers or people who love New York. Well, I am inspired by more romantic movies to watch, and I am going to recommend one of my all-time favorite romantic movies, one of the ones that kind of informed the way that I thought about romance, which is Roxanne, starring Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah. Oh, it's such a great movie. It really is. I adored this movie as a teen, and it still holds up as one of these pop culture cornerstones of my life. It is a take on Cyrano de Bergerac, which is a story of a man with a huge nose who thinks himself far too ugly to woo the beautiful Roxanne. So instead, he helps the handsome but dim firefighter try to woo her through letters and some hilariously slapstick moments. I still laugh out loud when I watch it. Steve Martin is amazingly charming. If you've never thought of him as a romantic hero, he is amazing in this movie and has one of the funniest scenes ever in a bar doing comebacks about his big nose. Just, I just love that movie. This movie works on every level. It's beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to look at. The romance is beautiful. It's so funny. All the secondary characters are like killing it. I love this movie. We need to show this movie to your daughter. Yes. She's the perfect age to watch it. Next movie night. Everybody, that's your homework. Go watch Roxanne. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. We had so much fun discussing all the little nuances of Anne and Gilbert's love story, and we hope you did too. We have some really, really fun episodes coming up, including one discussing Gilbert's character arc and our big one-year anniversary celebration. I hope you'll join us for all that fun to come. Please follow, like, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts so other Kindred Spirits can find us, and follow us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub. Our Instagram is full of delightful surprises. We 
just had our first ever giveaway. And we always love hearing from you all. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, kindred spirits.